I listen to the language that they use um, to describe their challenges or their culture. I listen to see if whether or not they use active voice or passive voice. Um, so for example, every year we have a conference versus every year we host a conference. There's a very subtle difference, but we host a conference assumes a certain level of agency, whereas we have a conference assumes some level of inheritance. And I listen very closely to the language that they use to better understand how much power they perceive having over the things they're talking about. Welcome to How I Work, a show about the tactics used by leading innovators to get so much out of their day. I'm your host, Dr. Amantha Imba. I'm an organizational psychologist, the founder of innovation consultancy Inventium, and I'm obsessed with finding ways to optimize my workday. Now, the next few weeks, I've got some very special episodes coming up. You see, I've just got back from attending TED 2019 over in Vancouver, which was five amazing days of being literally covered in ideas and interesting thoughts and people. And while I was over there, I managed to record a few different podcast interviews with some really fascinating people that I'd reached out to. So um, they these interviews were recorded in kind of one of the meeting lounge areas, uh, none of which were soundproof. So you will hear a little bit of background noise, um, but we've mostly filtered it out. Um, now, today's guest, um, the first of these TED episodes that I'll be playing, was with Priya Parker. Now, Priya Parker wrote one of my favourite books that I read last year called The Art of Gathering, which is all about how to create great gatherings of people. So Priya teaches people how to gather better at home, work, school and in our communities. And she's also a strategic facilitator with a background in conflict resolution. And her company Thrive Labs has worked with organisations as varied as MoMA, through to the World Economic Forum and the International Finance Corporation on things like strategy, vision and purpose. So when I read The Art of Gathering, it really got me thinking differently about the gatherings that I have in my life, both in my work life and my personal life. And so I was so excited to learn that Priya was actually at TED to give a talk on the main stage about gatherings, which was brilliant and I think will be released in the coming weeks. So in this chat that I had with Priya, we talk about how she approaches her own gatherings and things like the subtle role that language plays in getting to the heart of where her clients are at. So on that note, over to Priya. It's good to be sitting here with you, Priya. Likewise. I want to talk about some of the gatherings in your life. And, and, and I'm interested like in the concept of a sales meeting. I don't know what that looks like for you, but you do a lot of facilitation for all sorts of companies all over the world. And I know one of the things that you talk about in your book is that you can't have a gathering defined by a category. So by nature, sales meeting is not a real <laughs> reason to gather. But I'm curious, like for, for meetings where you're meeting with a new organisation that you may or may not be working with, how, how do you kind of plan for that form of gathering? Well, the reason why you don't start with a category is because categories usually come with scripts in our mind. So sales meeting, I get an image of 
I don't know, a bunch of people in suits kind of trying to sell something. <laughs> and yes. I'm wagging my fingers, which your <laughs> listeners aren't going to hear. Um, and so even with a sales meeting, I would first ask, what is the purpose of this meeting? Is it to uh, make a relationship? Is it, is it to begin a long-time trusted relationship? Is it to uh, sell a product by the end of a 60-minute time together? Um, is it to... Uh, make people cognizant of a problem they had that they didn't believe there was a solution for, right? Those are very different purposes. And often, whether it's a sales meeting or a uh, leadership offsite or a orientation, new employee orientation, we assume that the category gives us our marching orders. And so with a sales meeting, regardless of what, what it was for, I would first ask, uh, I mean, ideally both sides, but if you're the host, what is the, your desired outcome for this meeting? And not have lines in your head of what that has to look like. Can you give me an example of maybe a meeting that you've had, like, let's say in the last year, of the, you know, the first time that you met with an organization that was potentially going to be one that you work with? Like, how, like what your preparation process looked like for that? Well... So I'm a, I'm a group conflict resolution facilitator, right? So um, I tend to work with organizations and companies uh, when, when somebody realizes, ah! <laughs> <laughs> so my sales pipeline looks very different, which is, yes. oh God, please help. <laughs> um, and what I do in my first meetings, and the majority of my meetings, to be honest, are telephones, telephone calls in terms of sales meetings, because my, you know, I, what I, my service is to help people diagnose their challenge or problem and figure out how to design a gathering that would help them address that problem. And so, for example, if an organization wants to rethink how they fundamentally pay their partners, and it's a very complicated thing to change, not only from a financial perspective, but from an identity perspective, I would think about in my first few meetings with them, whether they, or not they wanted to bring me in to facilitate those conversations, I'm really thinking about how are they answering my questions? Are they honest with their answers? Are their answers too perfect? Are they trying to sell me on a perfect organization, which in, in which case they don't need my services? And so a huge part of my goal when I work with organizations or groups is to see if there's fit. Hmm. And so what, are, like, what else are you listening for to, to see if there's fit? I listen to the language that they use um, to describe their challenges or their culture. I listen to see if whether or not they use active voice or passive voice. Um, so, for example, every year we have a conference versus every year we host a conference. There's a very subtle difference, but we host a conference assumes a certain level of agency, whereas we have a conference assumes some level of inheritance. This is something that happens all the time. This exists. I don't know if I really want it to exist or had any decision on making or fact that we host this conference. And I listen very 
closely to the language that they use to better understand how much power they perceive having over the things they're talking about. That's fascinating. I love the subtlety in that. Like, what's another example where you're using language to get really important cues from the conversation? You know, I, I, I'm biracial. I'm half Indian, half white uh, American. And some of it is how people assume. So sometimes I'm brought in for things related to diversity. So I was looking at a conference at, at the panels that they had uh, decided. And you can tell a lot about an organization based on the titles that they give to things. So the titles of a session, the titles of a panel. You can tell how people, the assumptions people make. So the title of this uh, panel was Diversity. Necessary evil or competitive advantage? And to me, either one of those framings is not what diversity is for. And the, there's so much in the framing of their assumptions that it made me understand why they were having huge problems with diversity at their organization. Because if you either think that it's, uh, you would do it because it is you know, it makes you look good and it would, you know, it's not just intrinsically good or because you have to. Um, either way, it shows a mindset about a topic um, that's very difficult to change. So often if you're listening to people's language, you can tell their assumptions about uh, the world through the language that they use. Mm. Now, on the other side of language is questions. Um, and I'm wondering, what are, like, do you have go-to or favorite questions for certain types of gatherings? Yes. So, uh, you know, I think one is just um, tell me more. So we radically underestimate the, the, it's the journalist trick of just asking people to say more. Um, and often within a group, people are very uncomfortable with silence so as a leader or as a facilitator, if you can hold silence a little bit longer, that's often pe when people actually say what's going on or say something real because their, their un discomfort with silence is greater than their discomfort with blurting something out. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, different questions, you know, at a, you know, for example, at a team dinner, um, to opt for asking questions to get people's stories rather than their opinions. So tell me about a time where blah, 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 blah. Or um, what is an experience in your life that nobody else around the table has, you know, would know about as it relates to whatever the topic is that you're talking about, as it relates to merger and acquisition, as it relates to selling something you don't believe in, as it relates to hiring, as it relates to, you know, whatever you're talking about. And then otherwise, questions that help people talk about the parts that aren't working. So that's great. We know that this product is amazing or we know that we know that this wouldn't be a, you know, initiative if it didn't, you know, if it didn't have good attributes. Tell us about your worries about it. Tell us about, you know, what keeps you up at night. Tell us about elements that uh, you believe might go wrong. And basically getting asking questions f that trigger people to get off script. I like those questions. And you mentioned holding the silence, which is so hard. And, and you'd be so practiced at that. Like, what are, what are some things that you do or maybe that you used to do when it wasn't, you know, maybe when it didn't come as naturally to you as it probably comes now 
to get better at holding that silence and, and letting things emerge from that. I had a great coach who would tell me to pay attention to my like physical reactions. When you're a conflict resolution facilitator, you have your own reactions of discomfort. And so if my heart started pounding, um, I would just notice that like, okay, I'm getting, you know, I'm getting nervous or, and, and just to allow my, she would say, hold your discomfort muscles, build your discomfort muscles, hold it a little longer. Um, or, you know, we have, we have physiological responses often in moments where we think that, you know, ah, I have to do something, um, my, with my palms would get sweaty. And, and I just learned as a facilitator that those weren't moments necessarily to intervene. There are moments to notice that the heat was rising in the room, um, which is, you know, is usually a good thing because you're getting closer to the topic of relevance. Um, I know facilitators who, you know, count to three. It seems like an eternity, but they just count to three before they say anything. Um, and the other thing is, it, it doesn't often have to be silence, but if, if people start arguing um, or start, it starts getting hot, just to simply allow it, it shouldn't be abusive, but just to simply not let your own conflict aversion stop important conversation. So, so one of the things I've seen is in organizations that I've worked with and, and different leaders is it's very difficult to have a culture or a team um, that doesn't mirror the people in charge's relationship to conflict. Now, I want to, um, now we're sitting here because you're speaking at TED and I feel like when I read The Art of Gathering last year, which was one of my favorite books of last year, love it. Um, it's, it's very practical. Like it's, it, there's like, the, there's a big idea throughout, but it's very practical. It's got so many practical tips to make gatherings better. And I was curious, what, what has been your approach to creating a TED talk around something given TED talks are not how-to talks, yet it's such an amazing how-to process for creating a great gathering. So what's been your process? I mean, my process has been, I think like many speakers, I have probably like 98 versions, you know, V98 <laughs> and, and a, a word file. And some of it has just been, I, my book came out in May and I, I host a lot of my book talks as live experiences. So I facilitate... Um, conversations in the room. And so I hear a lot from audiences, I think a lot more than most traditional book talks. And I listened to, and I thought back over the last year of what were the, what were the questions I heard most often? What were the examples that most resonated? When people email me, what are the things that they say most change the perspective on gathering? Um, and, and so first just, you know, wrote a list of various different examples and insights down. Um, I tend to talk through my thinking rather than to write through my thinking. So I recorded myself kind of giving lots of different versions of a TED talk oh, on my phone on voice memo <laughs> um, and then listen back and notice when when a sentence or language would work. Um, and and then, you know, you get a certain allotment of minutes and the TED talk format, has, you know, when a few years ago, uh, 18 minutes for many organizations uh, was a pretty radical number. You know, most talks, the, the, the default assumption was an hour, right? Or 30 minutes, which is like a really long time to talk. And um, now most talks, the longest is 18 minutes and most talks are nine to 12 minutes. Um, and so the really, the biggest challenge is figuring out what do I most want to say, uh, in my case, in nine minutes, um, that helps people begin to gather differently. That's a, that's a nice way to frame it. I like that. And 
what's what's your approach to managing nerves like because I imagine you know it's a nerve-wracking experience giving a TED talk but I imagine you would be in a lot of nerve-wracking experiences <laughs> because of your job so what like what are your go-to strategies for uh, the first is and I don't mean this facetiously to practice and practice and practice and get in front of as many groups and as many rooms as you can so my nerves have gone down over the years the more gatherings I've facilitated. But that's not necessarily helpful in the short term. So (laughs) the first is ahead of time, I physically make sure that I'm feeling good. I drink a lot of water. Um, I do a lot of uh, breathing exercises that that different coaches have taught me over the years. Um, A huge uh, one of my speaking coaches is a woman named Gina Barnett. And she always says that uh, that your breath is the source of all voice. Like it's very, very, very important to manage your breath. And so what is an example of a breathing exercise that you would do? Like, is there one in particular that you tend to go to or like? I tend to just sit quietly and breathe slowly through my nose and then exhale through my mouth, maybe five times, breathing in slowly and, you know, counting to five, holding it and then exhaling, counting to five. I drink water a lot. And um, the other thing is, I know it's been debunked, or it's at least controversial, is that Power Poses by Amy Cuddy, it really helps me. Before I go into any type of facilitation, or in most contexts, I'll go into a bathroom, I'll go somewhere, and I'll, I'll stand on my, I'll stand very grounded on my feet, and I'll breathe, and I'll get physically big, and it, um, it centers me. And for me, it, it helps me center and feel uh, physically strong and I'm a facilitator and so my body really matters even more than um, you know a talking head and so when I can get my nerves um, and feel very physically present in my you know in my actual physical body that's very helpful and then the last thing is you know psychologically I had a friend who told me that when she walked on the stage she would take a deep breath and just say love 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 and um, and it and it just kind of helped her remember like to come from love that was a, for her speaking. And I think the other thing is to, to know when, you, when you're writing or talking or speaking about work you deeply care about, to think about what you're doing as a gift and to not hoard your gift. And, and given we are here at TED, I, I, I want to know like from the perspective of a gathering, I mean, this is a massive gathering for 2,000 people, like what, what, what are the, the things that TED um, as a company I guess, gets really right when it comes to the gathering that we're in at the moment. And also on the flip side, like, are there things that you'd change to make it a better gathering? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I think think TED is relatively clear on its purpose. And I say this as an observer, you know, um, and as a visitor. And I don't, and I think that their core purpose is to help ideas worth spreading spread. And from that perspective, they are masters of the form of getting speakers ready, figuring out the topic, figuring out how to um, what the right allocation of time is, which is actually quite a talent. Some people, they have to figure out what is the best, um, how long does that idea need, which for within any organization is a fascinating skill to develop, right? And then to develop the talk in a way and create the audience experience and the speaker experience and all the technology that makes it really a ritual. 
And I think one of the things, one of the reasons TED, the TED Talk is spread around the world, not just, uh, you know, because of exquisite media reach and because of TEDx's, but is because they know who they are and they know who they're not and that there is a form to it. And whether it's however long the time period is, you know, the, the majority of conferences I've been to now have some place where someone's like, you know, giving a little TED Talk, quote unquote. That's a pretty big impact on a culture. And so I think they're clear on their purpose and they, they organize around that purpose. And I think over the years, you know, this is actually my first TED, but I think over the years they've started to think about in terms of the gathering, what else to focus on in terms of the interstitching beyond the experience of the talks. And I think, and you know, they would, they would say this as well. I think they are still figuring out as so many organizations are is beyond their kind of their core ritual of this talk, how much to facilitate and organize the interactions between the people there and how much to allow it to self-organize, how much to help people collide and meet that wouldn't necessarily meet, and how much to trust that people know who they want to meet, and um, how much when there's a power dynamic in that, which is true in every human interaction, um, do you allow that to perpetuate or do you want to interrupt it? And I think those are the questions every gatherer has. And the key is not uh, to have those questions or to not, but is to consciously ask them. And I guess like if, if you were taking over running TED 2020, <laughs> like what is one change that you would make to, to make it an even better gathering? I would think I would... Um, create more experiments for live audience exchange in the actual conference, meaning within the TED Talk. So right now the structure is usually six, you know, five or six talks per session. The speaker speaks out and the audience listens um, and supports and claps and you know, is challenged. And there are different formats. The Audacity Project, if you saw that, there's different, you know, it's it's literally two uh, raise money for these specific ideas. Um, but I think I would experiment more with live conversation with the, with the, um, with the audience in real time. Like through what means? Like through, through a facilitator. Getting people to type something in on a phone is great and is one form of it. But facilitating live conversation is riskier and it doesn't need to be recorded. This is literally just about the offline gathering, but is to see what does it look like. I'm very interested in the question of what does it look like to speak, to talk collectively. I am doing various events around the U.S. and I think of them as um, kind of reinventing the town hall. And I'll have 300 people in the room or 400 people in the room or sometimes 3,000 people in the room and facilitate live conversations. You need to have the technology for it where I ask a question and people respond to one another. They respond to me. They And you begin to learn collectively how do you think and talk and listen together. And I, I think TED would be an amazing place to try something like that. Yeah. Can I just ask what technology you're using to facilitate um, Right now, it's uh, it's just simply a bunch of um, microphones. So there's a conference called the Arena, which is trying to get young people to run for office in the United States. And in September, they hosted their gathering at the Philadelphia Convention Center. And so for my, I had, I think, 90 minutes with 450 people. And instead of having them all in rows like they were for the rest of the gathering, I asked them to put them in concentric circles, so humongous circles, but we did it in the main convention center. And so for that, I was mic'd up and then we had various people running around with mics. Um, and, you know, a lot of, I think a lot of fascinating gathering doesn't have to be extremely complicated technologically. We probably had six mics. 
Wow, that sounds amazing. Now, I need to let you get to address rehearsal, Priya. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Priya. I just think that she's just such a marvellous woman. Um, If you want to find out more about Priya, you can head to priyaparker.com. That's P-R-I-Y-A, Parker, P-A-R-K-E-R.com. And she writes a fantastic newsletter, which you might want to sign up to on her website. And if you haven't read The Art of Gathering, I just so highly recommend it. It's such a fascinating book, and I guarantee that it will get you thinking about gatherings in your own life very, very differently. So that is it for today. As usual, if you're enjoying how I work, tell people about it, write a review, make your views known, and I will see you next time.